If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. In Western society, individualism is everywhere. Whether it's being fueled by capitalism, technology, or populist politics, we are being encouraged to think of ourselves more than ever before. But how do other parts of the world understand the self? On today's episode, we're joined remotely by Professor of Comparative Religion and Philosophy at Lancaster University, Chakravarti Ramprasad. Other ways of thinking about who human beings are, which actually render the notion of individualism incoherent. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to Chakravarti Ramprasad. Let me say, uh, first of all, very briefly, what I intend to do in this talk. I want to um, put a little bit of pressure on the concept of individualism in my talk today. I want to look at how it arose and the role it played in what is often thought of as early Western modernity, say in the 17th century. And I'm going to ask how it was thought to apply or not to apply to the world outside that Western modernity. Then I'm going to turn to a pair of concepts that I'm broadly going to label uh, the self and the person as two ideas about the human being that are found in pre-modern Indian thought. And I'm going to use that pair to put a little bit more of a critical pressure on the notion of the individual. And I want to end by suggesting that individualism has a great many problems when it comes to talking about human beings and the way they actually live, as well as perhaps the way they ought to. So what is this concept of individualism? A dominant account of it goes something like this, that through changes in the intellectual climate, that marked the emergence of modernity in Europe sometime around the period of the late 16th and through into the 17th century, following on from the Renaissance, you saw this idea of the human being as each 
distinctive and driven by distinctive motivations, having a particular kind of interiority, that is to say, uh, an inward awareness of their own subjectivity, their own experiences and their own narratives about themselves. This idea, it is often claimed, arose in distinction to more diffuse senses of who we were in the pre-modern West and in other parts of the world, even at the time of the 17th century. This idea of individualism is then seen as justifying a particular narrative in the political history of Europe. It simultaneously seeks to secure the foundations of liberal democratic thought and the origins of a liberal polity in which individuals were seen as the way in which individualism was seen as the way in which human beings should be conceived of in relation to one another. And the primacy of that individual's own motivations, interest and self-worth was supposed to feed into a larger contract by which society was able to flourish. At the same time as this notion of individualism, which was thought to generate such related notions as tolerance and equality between human beings in the society, was being propagated and developed, it was also being used in an extremely unequal, hegemonic, intolerant way in the justification of European empires. Because it was claimed, and it's continued to be claimed into the 20th and even to the 21st century, that societies in the rest of the world, which did not go through this process of uh, individualization, which accompanied the birth of Western modernity, were seen as in some sense lacking that particular self-conception that allowed them to have the same uh, interactions and therefore the same rights as European individuals. And even after empire passed, we still continue to have this idea that individualism was a particular characteristic of Western human beings. So for example, in the literature on the sociology of India, we have had many uh, influential notions of how to think about the Indian human. One idea was that whereas the Western individual, uh, Western human being of modernity was an individual, the Indian and particularly the Hindu person was actually always thinking hierarchically, homo hierarchicus and therefore thought of himself and herself in terms of a location within an hierarchy. Now, that basically meant that you could say, if Hindus 
and by extension, other Indians in South Asia, thought in terms of who was above them and who were beneath them, then obviously it would not matter to them whether they were being ruled by emperors in India or emperors in London. You would simply have a justification for the continuation of a hierarchical self-conception of the human being in which there was a new set of rulers. And that, as I said, continued to be thought of as a structural analysis of human beings in India, even after the end of the British Empire. Another kind of idea, an American idea, was that whereas in the West you had an individual, in India we needed to think of human beings as individuals, that is to say, always in connection to others. And I remember, this is a little bit autobiographical, but it does set me on this larger intellectual trajectory. When I was studying these ideas, say in my uh, late teens, I would really ponder on what exactly it meant for me to be uh, not an individual in the way these self-assured French and British and American uh, anthropologists were. I could clearly not be the case that I couldn't withdraw into my own thoughts and be silent, apart from the very phenomenological truth that I did so. The vast literatures of India, going back to uh, 1500 BCE, were replete with examples of interiority of an extremely sophisticated sort. So it wasn't as if there wasn't a literary cultural narrative, and it wasn't as if uh, phenomenologically it was impossible to think I or anybody else not Western could think of themselves as separate, as distinct, as having access to ideas about themselves, thoughts and feelings that were unique and not, in fact, simply shared or floating in relationality with others. And there was also a much trickier question of how exactly this concept of individualism was supposed to function. If indeed it was tied to uh, the necessary conditions for a liberal democracy in which concepts of equality, for example, and freedom of social action were possible, then was it the case that, say, when the impeccably liberal democratic Indian constitution was formed, that at least the mothers and fathers of the Indian constitution, if not the hundreds of millions of people uh, in India, suddenly became Western individuals? What kind of a psychological uh, flip had been thrown? Moreover, if individualism was a continuous presence an invention of a particular type of subjectivity in Western modernity, then what exactly was happening in totalitarian regimes of the West, or indeed authoritarian ones like Spain or um, Portugal or Greece, which did not even become liberal democracies until the 1970s? So we start having all these different kinds of questions about what individualism could possibly be. So I hope I'm able to at least establish a prima facie case 
that individualism cannot be taken seriously as a description of the phenomenology of subjectivity. It cannot be taken seriously as a kind of um, historically specific inauguration of a way of being human. But it does draw historically upon an idea that is broadly conceived of as the soul, and particularly takes a trajectory perhaps from uh, St. Augustine in uh, the third century through to Descartes. And the idea of the soul combines the psyche, uh, the concept of the psyche in Greek thought of that which is um, the activity and the spirit of uh, vitality in a human being with the Christian notion of a soul as that which is eternal and that which was created by God, as opposed to all that is not soul, which is material and body, and which then um, falls away and becomes uh, changed. This idea of the soul, of course, takes on the particular notion of interiority, famously, in Descartes. That is to say, the capacity to be aware that one thinks, which is not accessible to another who thinks that they think, becomes the mark of what distinguishes one from the other. So what we then have is a metaphysics of the soul underpinning the notion of the individual, whether or not we think of that which is specifically interior and non-material in Christian terms, or whether we don't any longer think in terms of a, uh, a non-material soul, but rather as something confined to the surface, within the surface of a human being's body. So the power of the notion of the individual in Western modernity is that it remains accessible regardless of whether you think about it in terms of um, a religiously ordained distinction between the soul and the body, or whether you think about it more in terms of agency and the freedom to act and the primacy of one's own thoughts and one's own desires in action. Whichever way it is, you get this notion of an individual as having a robust self-awareness which has an effect on how we need to think about the social structures and especially the political structures of power within which these individuals operate. Seen that way, it is clear that um, individualism is a metaphysically grounded political project. The project of trying to say that a fully realized individual is one that is the basis of uh, the determination of powers and freedoms within a society. To some extent then, that takes the um, sharp edge of 
uh, white supremacism and justification of imperialism with which individualism was born. Rather, it now becomes simply a guiding principle as to how we might organize the flow of power, whether in interpersonal relationships or in economic structures or in any other form of social uh, action. If that is the case, then individualism becomes, it would seem, not something specific, although historically perhaps conceived in early Western modernity, it is something that becomes available as a way of thinking about the individual within society, the human being within society. And from that is generated the primacy of the values, the inclinations, the desires, and the um, volitional direction of each human being. And it is that, of course, that is the underpinning of global capitalism. And it's perfectly clear that if individualism means the way by which we determine uh, as far as possible the job we want and the clothes we wear and who we um, uh, relate with and where we want to go for our uh, uh, sort of leisure activities, it doesn't matter whether you're an Indian or a Chinese or a Nigerian or an American. Individualism simply becomes a way of allowing the flow of wealth and power and information as if they were determined by particular human beings, each human being as much as the other, which we know, of course, immediately as it is said, is a ridiculous idea because, of course, there is no equality in the expression and the consequences of the expression of one's agency anywhere in the world. So individualism really comes up against the uh, problematic situation that it has not generated what politically it was thought to, i.e. a way in which each and every human being was just the same as each and every other human being when it came to the values and uh, the foundations of their agency, their desires, their freedoms. Individualism simply fails to explain how a politics that generates equality simply does not happen. In fact, has contributed to as much inequality in the freedom to express agency, in the freedom to achieve what one wants of life's narratives and goals as is possible. Why is this happening? I would suggest that on a philosophical basis, the concept of individualism is deeply flawed. In order to approach that philosophical incoherence, I want to draw, as I said, on these two ideas from uh, classical Sanskrit thought. I'm just going to label them uh, because of their lexical equivalence, the two ideas as the idea of the self and the idea of the person. 
And some of these ways of thinking have in fact started emerging in contemporary uh, phenomenology, for example, in the West. The idea of the self is the idea of a perspectival consciousness, something that is one and singular and cannot be replicable as to its locus and perspective, and yet is the same in endless other loci, points of perspective. So my consciousness of myself as experiencing the details of reflexively being aware that I'm looking into a camera and talking at this point with these words, that specificity of perspective, even if I had been born perhaps with a different name, had a different set of inclinations, had different memories, would not change. And that particular point of consciousness cannot be shared. However carefully and however much in detail I explore and present my point of consciousness with another person who say I'm deeply in love with and I who understands what I say. Nevertheless, that person, that individual would have a different point of consciousness. So this notion of the self is not that of the soul as we encounter it in uh, pre-modern Western thought. Because the soul carries with it a combination of immateriality and also a set of uh, specific features that makes that person, that, that soul, that soul. So Ram Prasad's soul is Ram Prasad. Whereas this self, the Sanskrit word is Atman, this perspective is not that of Ram Prasad. As I said, the contingent features that make this human being this human being do not affect the point of consciousness from which all other perspectives are generated. It doesn't make that Ram Prasad. That perspective is independent of the contingent features. Seen that way, everybody is an Atman, equally so, because the perspectival consciousness that generates all else is found in an endless number of creatures, human and non-human, and is in terms of its content completely indistinguishable. So one way of looking at it is to say there is only a formal identity, not a contentual identity. That is to say, it is simply the fact that there is a self here and a self there and a self there and a self there and so forth that distinguishes between them. But you can't say more about that self than that it generically is what constitutes the essence of a human being. So we are individual in that way, looked at from the perspective of the self, but we cannot actually use that to distinguish who and what each of us is. That much more rich and extended notion of this human being 
comes through the concept of the person. The Putgala, the the, the, the Purusha, for example, is, is one of the Sanskrit words for the notion of a, a person. There are other words. Now, a person is the human being I take myself to be. The entire range of things that constitute me. And that way, in that context, each person is distinguishable from another person because of the content of who they are. But then we have an issue. If you take this notion of a person as what makes one human being distinguishable from the other, we start asking how that identity of the person is constituted. And it turns out that that constitution of personhood is not at all specific or um, confinable to the individual human being. My parents, my teachers, my friends, the people who sit in a bus next to me and take up more space or perhaps move to offer me more space, people I meet on my dog walks through my person, I nod and smile and think I've had a good uh, walk today. Everybody is implicated in the constitution of my personhood. How I come to desire things is based on what I have read, who has taught me, who I have overheard, um, how I was brought up. And the same goes to each and every one of us. So the more robustly we try and identify who we are, the more embedded we become with all others. And these are the two thoughts, which uh, concepts, which I wish to bring to bear on the notion of the individual. Very briefly put, if you think of the self, as I've been talking about, as the basis of what constitutes an individual, you do get something that might distinguish one from the other, but it does so only formally simply the fact that the perspective of consciousness here is not the perspective of consciousness there, there, or there, is distinguishable, but it has no role whatsoever in our psychology, in the kind of things which make us think who we actually are, which drives what we want of life, what we think we can do to express ourselves. So the notion of the self as this minimal point of consciousness that clearly sets one from another is useless when it comes to generating the supposedly rich set of senses of freedom and, and, and agency and action that is supposed to constitute the individual. On the other hand, if we take who we are as a person, as the means of distinguishing an individual from another, we find, in fact, 
that no individual, as it were, is individuated enough. All our individuation is paradoxically the result of all our relationships. So the idea that you could think of yourself as uniquely able to express your freedom by picking up a gun and walking down a street, thinking of yourself as expressing a, a particular sort of freedom that's specific to you is incoherent. You do not have a freedom that is specific to you, which because everything that you think is specific to you, that you experience as yours, is a result of a dense web of intersectionalities with everybody else. So the paradox there is what makes you you, what makes you unique is actually other people. So if we look at the concept of the individual, I think it falls apart. The individual as an individual in the, in the terms of an abstract self does not allow for the rich inner life which is supposed to be justified by individualism. If on the other hand, you want the rich inner life that motivates individualism, you find actually that that life is possible only through a relationality with all else that does not give you unique freedoms, but simply locates you in the care of others and in your care for them. So I think that we need to go back and ask whether this politically powerful notion of individualism, which has been used in these ideologically loaded ways, which is shown to be not able to deliver what it says its moral uh, imperatives are, should be seen as arising out of a particular metaphysical moment in or trajectory in history. Whereas there are other ways of thinking about who human beings are, which actually render the notion of individualism incoherent and perhaps points us to a way in which we might rethink what human beings are and consequently what kinds of freedoms and agency we have and even more importantly what that means for the societies and the polities in which we live. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen and tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.